Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Chamber Music Guild, presenting a guitar workshop Thursday, February 9th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. at Bellhaven's Center for the Arts, featuring the Mobius Guitar Trio from San Francisco. Information at mscmg.net. morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an update on campaign finance reform bill making its way through the legislature. Then, an international student talks about life on a Mississippi campus after a presidential travel ban. I wasn't too surprised by the act of banning itself, because after all, it was part of the platform on, on which he ran for the White House. But I was surprised by the choice of countries. Given uh, 9-11, you'd think that Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, would be subject to the same uh, ban or moratorium, if you like. Plus, a new agreement in the long-running Cleveland school's desegregation case. And the Vienna Boys Choir is bringing hundreds of years of choral tradition to the Magnolia State. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Legislators in the Mississippi Senate are expected to pass a bill that will put the brakes on lawmakers spending campaign funds for personal use. Republican Senator Sally Doty of Brookhaven authored Senate Bill 2689. The measure includes stipulations lawmakers cannot spend campaign funds to pay their mortgage, buy a vehicle, or pay utility bills. Doty talks about the bill with MPB's Desiree Frazier. You know, we worked on this bill last year as well and and passed it out of the Senate. Uh, I think it's very important for us to have some, uh, you know, accountability to our constituents and to those who, who help us raise money to, to do our work here and, and to run for office. And so I think it's a very important, uh, important bill for us to have. What element of it stands out most to you that you think will be uh, most important? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that people understand that I do not think we have a huge problem here in our state. I know there was a, a front page article, I think, either today or yesterday, talking about people spending their money at the grocery store and this, that, and the other. Well, you know, I've done the same thing because when I have a fundraiser, I don't have a caterer. I go to the grocery store and buy the food and cook it myself. So a lot of the things that have been reported are, are a bit um, sensationalized. Uh, but I, I do think there are instances, particularly like uh, credit cards, when people use credit cards um, within their campaign. You know, I do feel like you can't just say on your campaign report, oh, $3,000 payment to Visa, you need to say, I spent $500 for an ad in my local newspaper. I sent five, spent $500 uh, for food for a fundraiser. You know, you need to itemize that. So I, I think that's a very good uh, portion of it. Uh, I also think the um, restriction on what you do with your money when you leave office, when you terminate your campaign account, uh, I don't think uh, it should be just money that is there for you to retire on or or whatever you may do. I I think we need some restrictions on that. And and the bill does that in a way that doesn't hurt our members, longtime members who've been here and and who may have a good bit in their campaign account um, because you've always got to be ready for that next election. And uh, so I don't think it's fair to change the rules of the game on them. So we will um, have a certain start date for that restriction. You know, the Senate has already voted on this. It's, it's not problematic at all. We, uh, we will send it. And I think the House language is a bit different over who would oversee this. Our version has the Secretary of State. The House version has the Ethics Committee. And we'll get together in conference and work that out. Think it's going to pass? 
Uh, yes, I, I do. I think it should pass this year. I, I think we had a, a bit of a, a meltdown uh, over in the House last year on it, and I, I think they have resolved it. They passed it early on in their session, uh, and so I don't see any problem uh, if we can reach an agreement on you know, who will oversee it, and, and I think we should be able to do that. Senator Sally Doty with our Desiree Frazier. And to find out more about legislative action this week, watch at Issue tonight at 7.30 on MPB TV. An international student talks about life on a Mississippi campus after a presidential travel ban. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Are you resolved to lose a few pounds this year? How about a few thousand pounds through the Public Radio Vehicle Donation Diet? Donate your old car, truck, or RV to support this station and drop a lot of unwanted weight from your garage in a matter of days. And you'll feel great because you're also supporting public radio in the biggest of ways. It's easy, fast, and you may even earn a tax write-off. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi are working to put students' concerns to rest following a presidential executive order on immigration. The order signed by President Donald Trump temporarily halts travel to the U.S. from several predominantly Muslim countries. The University of Mississippi, Mississippi State University, and Millsaps College in Jackson are among the institutions that have issued statements in support of their international students. At Ole Miss, correspondent Matt Kessler caught up with Ahmed Saif, The Egyptian student says he was surprised his own country was not on the list. It was over the weekend and I was, um, um, I heard it over the radio. How did you feel? What was your immediate reaction? I wasn't too surprised by the act of banning itself because after all, it was part of the platform on, on which he ran for the White House. But I was surprised by the choice of countries. Given uh, 9-11, you'd think that Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, would be subject to the same uh, ban or moratorium, if you like, but they're not. As an Egyptian, what does the ban signify to you? Not only as an Egyptian, as as an Egyptian, Middle Eastern, as generally as as, as a non-American, I think that it defies what people know about American identity and values. Uh, and it's, 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 it, you know, it's a, it's a country for immigrants, open to other immigrants, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's a, it seems to me to be a sign that uh, that perception, that the rest of the world's perception of America is likely to change, shift at least. How are the other international students reacting? Um, some people are worried, especially the people from Iran. A um, couple of guys I know from, uh, from Iraq. There have been incidents of people um, having been banned uh, at the airport from coming from Iran to the U.S. Uh, so people are worried about that. People are worried what might come next. Um, actually speaking, being from Egypt, um, I don't know if um, Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia, and as well as other countries might be included in the ban in the future. Students from the seven banned countries that you know, international students, how is it affecting their plans? I don't know if the ban has affected any of my international friends' plans to stay here or to study um, 
here in a, in a big way. But people are just anxious. People, it's a, it's a very unpredictable administration, and um, you really can't anticipate anything beyond that. Have you spoken with friends and family in Egypt? What's the reaction over there? They just hope for the best. They they'd like to see the refugee crisis end sometime in the in the, in the near future. But they're they're not worried about me personally. Do you think the ban is targeted at Muslims? I think the ban comes from an irrational fear of Muslims based on the acts of a minority, just a small, a very small number of Muslims. But I also think that it does the administration a great service in terms of saying that we have delivered on the promise that we made to ban Muslims. It, in, in a way, it caters to the expectations of those who uh, voted for Donald Trump and it also, I, I imagine it would be um, beneficial to him, because, especially because he hasn't delivered on other promises, like, for instance, that he would prosecute Hillary Clinton. So that would, that would put him in a good light to the eyes of the people who support him. Uh, we voted for him for, for a number of reasons, one of which was that he promised he was going to ban Muslims entering the United States, and um, here he is, banning them. What do we do to move past this? How do you think we improve relationships? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in cultural dialogue, perhaps by, um, by making sure that the vetting process is effective and um, socially speaking for people to talk with each other. Um, if you have an Iraqi neighbor, talk to him, um, see what he thinks, um, speak to, to immigrants. Uh, perhaps your perception of, um, of them and their nationalities uh, will change. Has the University of Mississippi provided enough assurances for the safety of its international students? B but thank you for that question. I ha yeah, because I have to clarify that I feel pretty safe at the University of Mississippi. I, um, since, uh, since the day I, I came to the University of Mississippi, um, I've been treated with hospitality. I have a, a, a very good uh, circle of friends. Um, and yes, I do feel safe here. Has the University of Mississippi done enough? Given the current situation, I, I, I don't think that there is anything that, that the University of Mississippi could have, could have done and didn't do yet. But should the situation escalate in the future, we, as, as an international student, I would like to see some assurances that not just um, me, but um, all international students are protected, uh, are being provided with a safe environment. And that's it. Ahmed Saif spoke with correspondent Matt Kessler on the campus of the University of Mississippi. Hear about a new agreement in the long-running Cleveland schools desegregation case. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Jim Dees, host of Thacker Mountain Radio, inviting you to join us every Saturday night at 7 p.m., where we'll feature the best in literature and music. We're inviting you to reach out and put your hands on the radio Saturdays at 7 p.m. Thacker Mountain Radio on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
The Cleveland School District is looking ahead to next year. That's when students from Cleveland High and Eastside High will join together at a new unified school, Cleveland Central High School. It's part of a settlement agreement that will bring to an end a long-running desegregation case against the district. Board Attorney Jamie Jacks tells MPB's Ezra Wall she hopes the agreement will bring the community together. The settlement in principle is that we will have a high school at the old Cleveland High and Margaret Green campuses. It'll be called Cleveland Central High School, and it'll be grades 9 through 12. And then we would have a middle school or a junior high, grades 7th and 8th, at the old Eastside campus. The the biggest difference in what the court ordered uh, back in May of last year in this plan is the 6th grade. The 6th grade, um, what the settlement was, is that the 6th graders would return to their elementary schools. In other words, we're going to make every elementary school in the district, our neighborhood elementary schools, uh, make them have a sixth grade again. Currently, just for people who are not uh, familiar with Cleveland, currently there are two high schools in Cleveland. One is at the current Cleveland High Campus, which is what's becoming the Cleveland Central High Campus next year, right? And and the other high school is currently what? The other high school is currently the Eastside High School. And the Eastside High School will become the seventh and eighth grade campus next year. Okay. So okay. we're utilizing both buildings just in a in a different way. Sure. Neither one of our high schools had the capacity on their own to hold all of the high school students. Cleveland High had about six hundred students attending it, um, and and that was, you know, that was a lot of students. It, it could probably hold a little bit more, but not the three hundred and fifty that were at Eastside. So that was. There was no easy fix on where to put the high school students, but if you use the Margaret Green Junior High Campus, which is essentially right next door to Cleveland High, you could fit all of the high school students there. What's the most promising uh, part of this conclusion or this this, uh, settlement agreement in principle? Well, I think the most promising part of all of this is that our community, our school district and the teachers and the students and and everyone that is touched by by the school, which I think is everyone in our community, has some finality to this, has a firm plan that everybody knows, you know, what it is, it's clear, and everybody can, you know, get behind it, and we can begin marketing the plan to try and encourage people to stay uh, with us in the school district um, and stay in support of public schools. It's so important. So one of of the big big issues involved in this discussion uh, has has less to do with academics, um, but but more to do with the school standing with the Mississippi High School Activities Association, which is that combining the schools puts the school in a different classification. And there was there was an agreement to combine and then and then uh, an, an injunction against that. And so MHSAA had already begun the process of 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 scheduling uh, certain events, uh, assuming the school would be larger and fit into a larger classification. Does this put to rest all, all of those concerns and allow uh, the MHSAA activities, athletic activities, and everything else to go on and be scheduled as as though the combined school is is in full force. That is correct. Yes, this ends any confusion with the MHSAA. What was difficult was that in I believe it was October, MHSAA requires all of the schools to report to it its numbers or its estimated numbers for the next year. I believe they reclassify schools every two years, you know, take a snapshot and say, okay, where have you gone up, have you gone down? And then they fix their numbers for the different classifications, you know, 1A, 2A, 5A, what have you. 
And so in October of 2016, we were under a court order to have a consolidated high school and middle school. And we did not have the stay at that point uh, from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that we got later in January. So the district essentially had, had no choice and, and needed to report the 974 student number that would have been the, the consolidated school. Then when we got the stay from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in January, that, you know, complicated things. So, yes, I mean, that was a, uh, a confusing topic in our community, and, and this settlement can lay all of that to rest, and we'll play as a 5A team um, next year, and we'll play as the new Cleveland Central Wolves or the Wolf Pack. That's our new mascot. Now, as far as the, the, the settlement uh, as a whole, the uh, uh, what you're calling the uh, settlement agreement in principle, pe- pending the judge's approval, of course, d- does this put uh, to rest the, cons- the, the issue of 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 school desegregation in Cleveland? I certainly hope so. Um, I think the only things that were at issue in this lawsuit, the remaining issues was the remaining issue was whether the district's open enrollment policy and freedom of choice policy for the middle school and high school. You know, the district was pleased with the open enrollment policy. We felt like that was fair and it was constitutional. That was the major issue um, in this case, and I feel like this by creating, you know, one central high school and one central middle school should satisfy anyone who had a constitutional concern uh, with the school district. Jamie Jacks is an attorney in Cleveland, and uh, she represents the Cleveland School Board. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ezra. You're very welcome. The settlement agreement must now be approved by the judge on the case. The Vienna Boys Choir is bringing hundreds of years of choral tradition to the Magnolia State. Find out where they'll be next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Aaron, who's called in from Arkansas. Mary in Ocean Springs. Marlou is on the line in Jackson. Rachel is in Clarksdale. At MPB Think Radio, we are everywhere you want to go. Sardis, Henleyville, Greenwood, Jackson, Oxford, Ocean Springs, Meridian, Hattiesburg, and we're going to Memphis. So go anywhere you want. We'll be right there with you. MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The European boys' choir tradition is centuries old, and probably the most renowned part of that tradition is the Vienna Boys' Choir. The group is bringing their world tour to Mississippi for two concerts in the coming days, Saturday in Ocean Springs and Monday in Jackson. Joining us to talk about the choir and its rich musical history is Michael Beatty. He's executive director of the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra, which is sponsoring the Jackson concert. We think what they have to offer is really important, and they are willing to call this a benefit concert for the MSO, and they're participating in it in that way, and that's really cool, too. So we're collaborating with, with an internationally known arts group as a benefit for MSO and bringing great choral music 
to Jackson. There is no one in the world who has not heard of the Vienna Boys Choir. Isn't that the truth? And it spans across all interests. And their program represents that. They've got music from many countries. They've got music that you would consider pops. They've got music that you would consider classical. It's all in one big, wonderful program. How often do they change their lineup of songs? Well, in, in a sense, all the time. You know, this, this choir is essentially made of a hundred singers, but they divide into four groups in order to get all their worldwide commitments taken care of. And so they, and they have rotating directors. And so they're going to change their literature on a very regular basis. And they probably have several programs from which they choose, even on one North American tour. So what you might hear them sing here might not be the same exactly as where they sing somewhere else. How many boys are there in the choir at any given time? Well, the total registry is about 100 boys. We'll have about 26 of them or so in the choir that comes to us on February 6th. What ages? Well, they're 10 to 14. So, And, and the point here is that this is, in the case of the Vienna Boys Choir, it's soprano and alto, although they divide into more than two parts. But there aren't the usual tenor and bass parts that you might think in a mixed choir. And the whole point is for these boys to sing prior to the voice change because it's a particularly beautiful sound. There's just a whole lot of literature for it very angelic sounding it's it's just wonderful and and you know you think of 10 to 14 year olds these these are kids who sing some of the most incredible and difficult music on earth kids kids are wonderful they can do anything you ask of them and think of the window on the world they have participating in this choir they must have teachers that travel with them they do and of course it's a residential school uh they're in austria obviously vienna and um have existed in some form or another for several centuries, since the 14th century. Uh, talking about the the um, Mississippi Symphony Orchestra is not playing for this particular performance. That's right. That's right. The choir is singing on its own. They will, they will sing mostly unaccompanied, but some of the literature they're singing, there'll be piano accompaniment. And that's why we chose this really wonderful, intimate venue, Bellhaven Center for the Arts in Jackson, because it seats about 800, so... Seating is limited and tickets will go very quickly, but it also means that you're just kind of right up close and personal with the choir and you get this beautiful sound and the communication of all these different texts and they're doing everything from Henry Purcell and Mozart all the way to waltzes and folk songs and even... Singing in the rain. <laughs> well, that runs the gamut. It I does think. run the gamut, and it'll all be beautifully done. Do the boys speak English? You know, I think most of the world speaks English. Yeah, I think most most countries are multilingual. We tend not to be here in this country, but yes, they 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 many of them do. And we've we've arranged for the Mississippi Boy Choir to have a brief time with the Vienna Boys Choir so that uh, they can get to know each other a little bit. Now, I was wondering you know, when they're singing. In various languages, singing in the rain must be in English. I take it. <laughs> yes, so, we, yes, and and what they're most likely to do is what most choirs, like the Vienna Boys Choir, do. They're going to sing whatever piece they sing in the language it was written. Right, and I was wondering yeah. if they learned the music phonetically or whether they learn it knowing what the words sure. are. I, I, I think the answer is is in, in a sense both. They're obviously not going to know and be able to speak or read in all of the languages in which they sing. So in the ones where they tend to have some speaking knowledge, they're going to have a more instant ability to understand the text. If they're singing in a language that they don't 
have a personal knowledge of, then they are absolutely going to learn it phonetically, but they're going to spend a lot of time on the text because in any song you can name, whether from the simplest folk song to the Bach B minor mass, the text came first. And if the music and the performance doesn't serve the text, you haven't accomplished anything. So they have to know what it means even if they're singing in a language they don't know well. Michael Beatty is the executive director of the Mississippi Symphony. Michael, thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. We'll see you on February 6th. And just a reminder of the two concerts, the first one tomorrow night in Ocean Springs at the Mary Sea, and then on Monday in Jackson at the Bellhaven Performing Arts Center. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. At 10, Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.